Well, we've come at last to the end of our series. So I'm a bit of thinking, when's it going to end? It's come at last. There's a very interesting uh, scripture in Job, the book of Job. It's not uh, Job is not a book what we turn to uh, often enough. There's some great thoughts in the book of Job. And if you look at Job chapter 12... And just the first 13 verses of that chapter, there's a a wonderful few verses on God's creation there that Job, this is Job's reply to one of his comforters called Zophar. Let me just read the first uh, 13 verses of Job chapter 12. It's Job, then Job replied, Doubtless you are the people and wisdom will die with you. It's a sarcastic comment. You think you are the people, do you? And that wisdom is going to die with you. But I have a mind as well as you. And I'm not inferior to you who does not know all these things. I've become a laughing stock to my friends. Though I called upon God and he answered, a mere laughing stock. Though righteous and blameless, men at ease have contempt for misfortune, as the fate of those whose feet are slipping. The tents of the marauders are undisturbed, and and those who provoke God are secure, those who carry their God in their hands. But just listen to the next bit. But ask the animals, and they will teach you, or the birds of the air, and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth, and it will teach you. Or let the fish of the sea inform you. Which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every creature, and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words, as the tongue tastes food? Is not wisdom found among the aged? Certainly is, all of us who are older. (laughs) Does not long life bring understanding? To God belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding are his. Amen. Is that not a good passage of scripture? Absolutely fantastic. And perhaps you find Job a difficult book, but that's a great uh, confirmation that creation speaks of God's hand of power in creation. If you have your Bibles, well, I hope you have your Bibles with you. Look up uh, Genesis chapter 3, because that's where we are in this final talk on Genesis chapter 3. And it's, uh, it's interesting that we come to this final chapter of Genesis chapter 3, and I believe it's just so important this particular passage of scripture on the fall of man. And what you'll see there in Genesis chapter 3 is really a summary of the creation that we find in Genesis chapter 1. Now if you were going to college to get uh, some Bible teaching, especially a liberal college, uh, you would get taught that there are two stories of creation in the Bible. I don't believe that for one minute. 
But because there is a summary in chapter 2, as I said last Sunday, the name of God is changed. In chapter 2, where you find the word Lord in capital letters, L-O-R-D, that means that the word for God is Jehovah. Jehovah Elohim. And because it's not Jehovah in chapter 1, these liberal scholars say, well, chapter 1 is one account of creation, and somebody else wrote another account in chapter 2. A load of rubbish along the way. God can tell us about his name, can change his name without having to think there's two accounts of creation. But isn't it wonderful to think in chapter 2, we have this wonderful name for God, Jehovah. And that name for God is the, the personal name. That when Moses said, who will I say sent me? And God says, say, yeah, Yahweh sent you, yeah, Jehovah sent you, I am who I am. And that name Jehovah is often linked with other words like Jehovah Jireh, God my provider, Jehovah Shalom, God my peace. And it's just wonderful to see that happening there in the second chapter of Genesis. We also said last week that Genesis 2.4 gives us this first indication of the reason why the book is called Genesis. It talks there in the NIV, this is the account of the heavens and there. But the better word would be, this is the beginning of, or this is the origin of, or, or the generations of, or the offspring of. And that's why the name Genesis is given to that book, because it's a book of beginnings. It's the beginning of creation. It's the beginning of marriage. There's so many beginnings. The, the beginning of the revelation of God's name. So many beginnings in the book of Genesis. And that's why it's so important for us to grasp the teaching of this tremendous uh, book of the Old Testament. We highlighted there are three problems that we spoke about uh, last week in Genesis chapter 2. Number one is found in verse 5 of Genesis chapter 2. There was no rain. That was a problem area and, and it says there that God coped with that by streams that came from the earth in some kind of vapour to water the earth. You'll find that there in verse 6. The other thing that happened was there was no man to till the ground. It also said in verse 5, and that was uh, dealt with because God formed man from the dust of the ground. We don't know the details of how God actually formed man from the dust. But we know that dust itself can speak of the frailty of humankind, of the frailty of man. And we find that in verse 7. And then God formed that the other problem was no helper fit for man, it says in verse 20 of chapter 2. And God solved that problem by forming woman from Adam's rib, or we could say from Adam's side. And again, that speaks of the woman being uh, complementary to the man. Not competing with the man or the man with the woman, but a complement, com a complementary uh, creation of God. Some interesting questions, of course, arise from Genesis. I don't want to try and go into them here, but if you look up the, uh, the website, www.answersingenesis.org, you'll find the answers. For instance, um, did Adam have a belly button? Kids will ask that along the way. If you go to that website, it'll help you. Was Adam an actual one man? Because the word Adam means man, does it mean that uh, God brought into being the whole human race 
Uh, only, was only one person there, the first man on this earth, or was it mankind, the race of man? Again, that's answered on that website as well. So it's good to, to look at these questions. And if Adam was the only man, or the only was one woman, where did Cain get his wife? It talks there in, in, in Genesis chapter 4. We need to read the story there and go onto that website and it answers all these questions. But let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. For here we have the account of the fall of man. You'll never understand the teaching of the Bible until you understand the fall of man. You'll never understand the glorious gospel unless you understand the fall of man that we find here in Genesis chapter 3. This is so important, so important to understand this. Straight away at the beginning of chapter 3 we're introduced to Satan in the form of a servant. A serpent, more crafty, the Bible says, than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. There are some very able Hebrew scholars who tell us that this word serpent can also mean shining one. Now that's very interesting, isn't it? Because you find in 2 Corinthians 11 and 14 that Satan sometimes transforms himself as an angel of light. And so even the serpent, the crafty and sly servant, serpent, can also mean a shining one. He doesn't come with horns and a spiky tail, but often in scripture the enemy comes in some kind of disguise to lure us, to, to tempt us away from the purpose of God for your life and for mine. That's how Satan works. And so his work in Adam and Eve is to bring about disobedience to the word of God. He wants to make us disobey the word of God. And you remember that Adam and Eve received a word from the Lord. That was the only word that God had given them up to that point for living their lives. You'll find it there in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Let me just read it again. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But when you eat of it, you will surely die. Here's God placing a test for mankind up in this garden of Eden. And the test is a test of, of love and obedience. If you love me, says God, you will obey my commands. And so God places that text, that test in all of our lives. Do you really love me? And God was putting Adam's uh, loyalty to the test. Do you love me, Adam? Then you're going to obey me and not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But of course that wasn't how it actually turns out. So what does Satan do to bring Adam and Eve into disobedience? Notice that he starts with doubts. That's how the enemy starts in your life and mine. He starts with doubt. Satan begins by seeking to undermine the confidence of Adam and Eve in the word of God. Satan could well have said, are you really sure that this is God's word? Is it the kind of thing you would expect God to do to cramp your style in this garden with all these good things around you? This isn't like God. This can't be what God means. 
And that's the kind of thing that, and the thoughts that come into our minds that, that Satan will sow seeds of doubt in your mind and also in mine. He gets a foothold in our minds by casting doubt upon the word of God. Having gained an entrance into the mind of Eve, he proceeds to invite her from the area of doubt into denial. That's the next stage. Open denial. And so you find in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 4, you will, you will not surely die. But God said to Eve that she would die. And here she goes further than doubt. She allows Satan to take her along the path of denial. And then thirdly, along that same road of doubt and denial, you end up with disobedience. And so you find there that she took some of the fruit and she gave it to her husband. And that's how Satan works. He begins with helping us to doubt the word of God for our lives. And God gives us a word, doesn't he? God is pleased to, to give us instruction, to give us guidance, to put a word into our lives. And, and then Satan comes along and sows those seeds of doubt. Well, perhaps that wasn't for me. Things haven't quite worked out as I, I thought they would work out spiritually. And maybe that word wasn't for me at that particular time. That's how Satan works. And then we begin to deny things and say, well, it couldn't have been for me. I don't think that's what God's like. God's not like that. But sometimes we've got to receive a rebuke from the Lord. Something strong that God has to speak into your heart and mind. And we begin to deny say, well, that can't be from God. That's just too, too rough and too personal. And then right into the area of disobedience. But let's move on to how Satan works regarding the essence of sin. Look firstly at pride. Look at chapter 3 and verse 5 again. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here is Satan bringing conflict into Adam and Eve regarding their worship of God. Before this temptation takes place, there's only one God to worship. But here is Satan saying to them, you're going to be like gods. You're going to be like gods. Only one God that you can worship. Only one God to serve. And here is Satan saying, you can be like gods. When we're in that, uh, some of you have heard of the New Age movement. I can't remember, is it McLean, that uh, actress? She was involved in the New Age movement, and is it Ike, one of, the, one of the guys from the TV, was involved in it. And one of the things that they were teaching in that New Age movement was you can be gods. Perhaps you remember that in the, the New Age movement when it was in its infancy. You can be like God. And man fell to the devil's device of holding before them the, ten, the temptation to pride. Pride of face and pride of place, as it were. The self-worship or the, the self-centeredness that comes into life. You know, friends, the Bible's got a lot more to say about pride than we ever imagined. We think about the sin of lust and immorality and hatred and, and bitterness and all these things. But the Bible has a lot to say about pride. Let me just quote one or two verses like Psalm 31 verse 3. Love the Lord all his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but the proud he pays back in full. 
Psalm 101 verse 5 Whoever slandered his neighbour in secret him will I put to silence Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart him will I not endure Proverbs 3.34 He mocks proud mockers but gives grace to the humble that's quoted at least twice in the New Testament Proverbs 16.5 The Lord detests all the proud of heart be sure of this they will not go unpunished Romans 12.16 Live in harmony with one another do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position do not be conceited 1 Corinthians 13.4 Love is patient Love is kind, does not envy, does not boast, is not proud. First Timothy 3.2 People will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. And finally, Revelation 13.5 The beast will be given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months can I ask you a very simple question this morning are you too proud to bow the knee are you too proud to be humbled before God because there's times when God really wants to humble us and to break us down and just break us in such a way and say, Lord, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. And sometimes we're too proud for God to humble us and bring us to that place that he wants to do so. But also the essence of sin is not only pride, but we can see here it's also to do with rebellion. Satan was calling for open rebellion of Adam and Eve against God and his word. And Adam rebels against God. How does he rebel? He says, you're the one that gave me this woman. You gave me this woman. And so the essence of sin is pride and, and self and rebellion. But look at the effect of sin in Genesis chapter 3. Number one, there's guilt. The guilt of Adam and Eve. They hid themselves from God. But they realized their nakedness. And they were ashamed. The other thing, effect of sin was disillusionment. This is one of the things about sin. It's the bitterest thing about sin. That the promises the devil makes to us are nothing but lies. You're going to be fantastic. You're going to be like gods. Is that how it turned out to be? Of course it wasn't. They were ashamed of themselves. They hid themselves and they discovered in a very powerful way that Satan is not only a liar, the Bible says he's the father of lies. He's a liar, he's the father of lies. And then we have someone that's put it this way, that Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent and the serpent hadn't a leg to stand on. Anyway, something like that. But here's this disillusionment that comes in, guilt, disillusionment and then separation. They were banished from the garden. They were separated from God's plan and purpose. And God said, you shall surely die. Now, of course, you can come back to me and say, but they didn't die. They didn't die physically. Well, that's true. But you see, death can also mean separation. What is death if it's not separation from us? But also, of course, the, the fall of man brought death into this world. 
Man was meant to be a kind of creature who would live forever. We don't get much mention of the tree of life, do we? There's the tree of life, and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We mentioned the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is God's knowledge. This is God's e knowledge of evil and knowledge of good. Don't touch that. You've got so much knowledge, but not for touching God's knowledge and evil. That belongs to him. But this tree of life isn't mentioned anymore until the end of time in the book of Revelation. Because you see, that tree of life would be there for those who didn't rebel. For those who stayed faithful. And there was going to be that life that would go on and on. But because of man's fall, death came into this world. So there's guilt, there's disillusionment, there's separation through sin. And the fourth effect of sin here is the curse. The serpent is cursed in chapter 3 and verse 14. The ground is cursed in chapter 3 and verse 17. And ever since the fall of man, the tilling of the ground became a toil. The thorns and the thistles and the sweat come into being. And there's even a mention here about pain in childbirth as well. I wonder how many of us think of the consequences or the effect of sin in our hearts and lives. Do you ever think of where that kind of stuff is going to lead us? And how we're going to feel after we let God down and, and feel that guilt and that disillusionment that what we thought was going to be promised to us if we went along that certain road has been nothing but lies. We've been sold a lie that we're going to be wonderful people if we get rich and get all that money from the lottery and all that kind of stuff. That everything is going to be just fantastic. And the devil is the father of lies. But I'm so glad Genesis 3 doesn't finish on that negative note. Here in Genesis 3, we've got another first. It's the first gospel message that we find in the Bible. You'll see it there in verse 15. The first gospel message in the Bible is chapter 3 and verse 15. And I will put enmity or difference or rebellion between you and the woman. God is speaking to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You see what's actually happening here that the serpent can do some damage but only to the heel. Whereas the serpent is going to have his head crushed and that means certain victory. That means certain power overcoming the enemy itself. And what we find the seed of the offspring of the woman would break the head of the serpent. And what we have here in verse 15 is God declaring war on Satan and gives him the promise of a redeemer. Satan could bruise Christ's heel as it were, but Christ would crush his head and defeat him. You see, you can't get to this part of scripture without thinking about the victory of the cross of Jesus. The wonderful cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, you get the picture of Jesus as the first Adam. And so it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. 
As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have been born in the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. The first Adam's sin plunged us into sin. But the last Adam's obedience brought us into salvation. In Adam we all die. In Christ, through a faith in him, we all have forgiveness of sin and we're made alive. We have eternal life. Is it any wonder the cross of Jesus is so important to us? I'm sure I've told this story before, but I'll, I'll tell it again. About the wee girl that got lost in Glasgow many, many, many years ago when children were able to play in the streets and <clears throat> there wasn't as much concern as there is now. And she managed to wander off from her aunt's house. She didn't stay in Glasgow. She was staying with her aunt. She wandered off in Glasgow and she got herself a wee bit too far away from the house and got herself a bit lost. And this kind gentleman stopped and said to the wee girl, You're looking kind of lost, my dear. Are you lost? She says, Yes, I am. He says, And where exactly are you trying to go to? What's the street? And she couldn't even remember the street where her aunt's dead. But she knew this. She said, Just take me to the cross and I'll find my way home from there. She meant, of course, Glasgow Cross. Just take me to the cross and I'll find my way home from there. And that's so important about the cross of Jesus Christ. We need to be able to say in our own hearts, please, just take me to the cross and I'll find my way home from there. And the hymn writers, they love to write and sing about the cross. I'm not ashamed to own my Lord. And the chorus says, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I'm happy all the day. That other wee chorus that we learned many, many years ago, there's a way back to God from the dark path of sin. At Calvary's cross, it's, sorry, and the, the, sorry, the, there's a door that is open and you may go in. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. And some of us may have gone away from the Lord. And the, the chorus is saying there's a way back to God from the dark pastors and there's a door that's open and you may go in at Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus but how many of you remember Stephen Alford he came to Scotland had some great crusades in the Albert Hall in Edinburgh and I went to some of these uh, crusades and the choir that was formed there for these tremendous crusades they always sang a hymn at the end and the hymn was this hymn, there's room at the cross for you. There's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. There's room at the cross for you. The fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. But all oh, the glorious gospel of our Redeemer. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to catch that. We need to accept that and have Jesus in our hearts. Let's just bow in a moment's prayer.